I don't know exactly how we're going to solve the problem, but what I can tell you is that we have a few guiding principles. We're going to do our best to protect the most vulnerable amongst us, and we're going to try not to skimp on the investing in things that will lead to future prosperity, like education and economic development. And we also had a guiding principle that there will be shared sacrifice. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pod County. Our guest on this episode, Jack Markell, the former governor of Delaware. When we actually recorded this episode back over the summer, for one reason or another, it's taken us forever to get it out. But we're, we're running out with our Jack Markell interview for this month's edition of Pod County. Uh, you might hear us reference the possible candidacy of Joe Biden. Uh, obviously, Joe Biden is definitely a candidate now. And certainly a lot of things have happened since Joe Biden has announced his candidacy. So just clarification there as to why we might make that reference. Jack Markell took office in the midst of the worst financial crisis uh, the country had seen since the Great Depression and steered Delaware through that. He was one of the early employees at Nextel and left the private industry for, for the public sector and was a former state treasurer and is now enjoying not having to deal with all of the, the craziness that comes with the 24-7 job of being a, a government executive. So uh, sit back and enjoy this interview with former Governor Jack Markell. Former Governor Jack Markell, our guest today, welcome. Thank you. This podcast is very much focused on people who have influenced in Delaware, who are who are still influencing Delaware, who have, um, you know, I think a, probably a good political bent to it because we're in government. Um, certainly, you might have been involved in politics in Delaware from, from my recollection. Seems like a long time ago. Yeah, I'm sure it probably does because it's been two years now. Right. What have you been doing for two years since you left the governorship? Well, the first thing I did is I rode my bicycle across the country. I saw that. Yes, and that was, uh, I'm very glad I did it, and I'd never do it again. <laughs> and I'm on some uh, corporate boards. I'm doing some consulting. I'm doing a lot of nonprofit work. Mm. Um, and basically between Boston and Atlanta. But it's a huge mix. It's a bunch of different industries, all of them really interesting. Mm. My stress level's a lot lower. I can imagine. And uh, I'm on the board of Delaware State University. That's the one Delaware thing that I'm involved in. And most of the rest of it's outside of the state. I followed your bike trip across America. When I graduated from college, or really from from high school through college, there was like a four-year period where I like lived in every time zone. So I was very familiar with a lot of the places you were going, especially Wyoming. How horrible was that part? Because it's windy, and it's arid, and it's open, and there's no relief. South Dakota was the worst. That was the worst. It was the, it was the best and the worst. The Badlands were the single most beautiful day we had. A couple days after the Badlands... Really hot, 113 degrees, and mm-hmm. then we went into Wall, South Dakota. Lots of wind, lots of rollers. But uh, Wyoming's so beautiful. That was the one time, unfortunately, in Wyoming, I had to get off my bike for a, a mile and a half and walk up Teton Pass. I could not make it on the bike. Yeah, I don't blame you. I wish I could have. In fact, I think if I had done it at the end of the trip, maybe I would have. I was in slightly better shape, but couldn't do it. So I, I biked and walked across the country. I think that the combination of A, altitude because the air is thinner, yeah. and then B, altitude because you're trying to pedal up a mountain. I don't, I don't think anyone blames you for that. Very steep. And you did that, at least part of it, with Senator Sokola, right? Senator Sokola, who is a much, much, much better cyclist than I am, joined me in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So mm. I, 
I had ridden 2,000 miles till Sioux Falls, and then he rode with me the rest of the way, all the way to Rehoboth Beach. But it was great having him. I had a couple other friends join me for five days at a stretch. A judge, uh, Eric Davis, joined me in Idaho into Wyoming, and then a friend, Bob Pincus, joined me in Idaho. It was great having these guys along. And then, it, and then once we got to Niagara Falls, I had a few other people from Delaware join me, and we rode together. The rest of the time, there were like 45 of us riding together. The rest of the folks ended up in New Hampshire. So when we got to Niagara Falls, I couldn't end in New Hampshire. I had to end in Delaware. So I had a few Delaware folks meet me up in Niagara Falls. And we rode uh, one more week down to Rehoboth Beach. And I'm sure the governorship, you probably felt you like you lost your mind a little bit, but you didn't. You didn't do this because you're crazy. Like there was a what? What was the reason you biked across the country? Well, it was a great thing to throw myself into. I mean, Governor Carney surely knows. I mean, it is 24 seven. I mean, it's like if, if you could have something that's more than 24-7, it's more than <laughs> 24-7. And so it was great to have something to really dedicate myself to, to really have to train hard to get my head clear. I also used it as a fundraiser for a number of Delaware organizations, starting with Motivate the First State, which is a great group trying to get uh, Delawareans to take care of themselves and to do acts of kindness. And that money actually flowed through a, to a number of Delaware organizations serving kids. So it was a combination, get myself in shape, get my head clear, see the country. What better way is there to see the country? And then help some Delaware organizations. Yeah. When you say get yourself in shape, I mean, how much weight did you lose? Well, I didn't lose that, that much. I yeah. only lost four pounds, believe it or not. Wow. Because because I had Dairy Queen like every opportunity, <laughs> at least every other day, sometimes twice in one day. I think and, that's allowed. And I just, it's incredible how many calories. I mean, I, I would take in five or 6,000 calories a day because you just, you could not, I, I had so much spaghetti and pizza and they try to feed you cheap, but it's a lot of pasta. It's kind of like, like when you're in high school and it's like every, every day is the day before the soccer game. Yeah. And you got the spaghetti dinner every night. Every night. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh, that's, it's I was so distressed. I mean, I, cause I literally, the first thing I did when I got home was step on that scale. Cause I, I wanted to see what I had lost and I couldn't believe it was only four pounds. Well, I'm backing up now to before you left the governor's office, all the way back to before you even were governor, why on earth did you want to be governor? I know, I know you had, I, guess, I don't want to say it's a non-traditional approach, because I think, if anything, the county executive's approach to getting in office was non-traditional, but you came from, like, a business side and then into treasurer. Right. Give me your origin story. How did that start, and what made you want to get into politics at all? Well, it started on when I was 17 on the streets of New Delhi, India, and uh, you know, I grew up in Newark, Delaware. Mm-hmm. And I spent pretty much 95% of my first 16 years within a three-mile radius of Newark High School. My uh, weekend nights tended to be tended to consist of driving up Main Street and back down Delaware Avenue, and that was pretty much, <laughs> that was pretty much I had life. Had a very similar high school experience. Yeah, but then after my junior year of high school, my parents said to me, sorry, but you're not going to be around for your senior year because my dad, who taught at the University of Delaware, decided to take a sabbatical. And the sabbatical was going to be the first half of the year in England, the the second half in New Zealand. And I said, I'm not going. And they said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. And they won. So I went. So I missed my senior year of high school, but it turned out to be a great opportunity. And we spent the first half of the year in Manchester, England. And then we spent six weeks to travel across Europe and Asia And I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's really true that uh, four days in India was a life-changing experience because to see the level of poverty that I saw there was just unlike anything I could have ever contemplated. And and so it was the first time in my life when I asked myself, sort of, why am I here, you know, here in some big cosmic sense. 
And I decided that, you know, there must be some bigger purpose than anything I'd ever really thought about because it's just, it was so overwhelming. It was at that moment that I decided I wanted to be involved in some fashion in, in public service. And the best analogy that I can give you is when he was 42 years old, Billy Joel gave his great graduation speech at Fairfield University. And the thrust of his speech was, he said, I wish I could meet the 21-year-old Billy Joel. Would he like me? Would he respect me? Have I been true to his ideals? And he goes on to say that the 21-year-old Billy Joel was the biggest pain in the neck of his life. And in a similar fashion, the 17-year-old version of myself was the biggest pain in the neck of my life because I, I kept coming back to that experience and thinking, I want to do something to serve the public. Do you think every teenager should have a similar experience where they just go and get completely out of their comfort zone? Or do you think it kind of applies to a certain, like you have to kind of have that already in you and it just needs to be awakened? Or do you think that that is transformative for anyone? I think it could be transformative for anybody. I mean, I don't know that it's realistic to get everybody. Oh, to, sure. Uh, yeah. But I, I do think that the more, the, the sooner we realize that we live in a world that's a lot bigger than the world we think we live in, the more we think globally, we act locally, think globally, mm -hmm. the better off it is. And we do, I mean, we're so interconnected in this world. It's just incredible, more so than ever. And so I do really encourage people to get out of their comfort zone. And that could be in the next county or it could be in another country, but to try try new things. And I think it's really important for our young people. When I was at that age, I went to Italy and Greece and met my wife. So huh. I totally agree that it, you can take a trip when you're a teenager and change your life. Yeah. It, and, and certainly, I mean, I had, I studied abroad when I was in college, a very eye-opening experience in the UK. You know, I really agree, especially I grew up in Cecil County. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very close, I want to say close community, but a very, you know, same thing. I think everyone did everything three miles from their house. Right. And never really thought about going outside. And, and when I had that experience of getting out of that bubble and seeing the rest of the world, it changed my mind about a lot of things. From there, you went you went to Brown. I did. I majored in, uh, because of that experience, I majored in what was called development studies, sort of third world studies at the time, and economics. By my senior year, I was at that proverbial fork in the road, and mm -hmm. I thought very seriously about going into the Peace Corps. But... I had come to the conclusion that if I wanted to change things, I had to speak the language of business because it was clear to me that the people who, who control the, the purse strings call a lot of the shots in life. So I did about the opposite of going to the Peace Corps, and I went to work for a bank in Chicago, and they sent me to business school at night at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I got my MBA, and then I had this great career in business. I went to a big management consulting firm called McKinsey, which was really a, a great thing to have on your resume. And then I was in the telecom industry for a while, which I loved. I was on the ground floor of the wireless revolution as a 13th employee at Nextel. And I loved it. I really did. It was fantastic. I worked with amazing people. But always in the back of my mind was this 17-year-old commitment that mm -hmm. I had made to myself. And finally, when I was in my mid-30s, I said, if not now, when? I decided I was living back in Delaware at that time. And I decided to run for state treasurer. I thought as a business person, I had a story to tell that could be, that could relate to being a state treasurer. And I was fortunate enough to win and was reelected a couple more times and then decided in 2007 to run for governor in 2008. I think treasurer is probably like the one state job that everyone thinks they know what it does, but probably has no clue what it does. What does, what does the state treasurer do? Well, I mean, it's as much as you can make of the job. I mean, so the, the gist of the job, and there's a very professional staff and they do, they pay a lot of the bills, take responsibility for the state retirement, uh, not, the, not the pension plan, but the deferred compensation plan, things like that. We tried to do a lot more with it, particularly around financial education and financial literacy. Literacy ended up creating the Delaware Money School, which is a 501c3, separate from state government, but the platform of being state treasurer put me in a position where I could do that. 
And so we did a lot uh, in that area, it gave me a great opportunity to learn about state government, to learn about the state in general, uh, to get out and meet people all over the state. And that was why, I mean, you know, after 10 years of that, I felt like I had done the best I could as state treasurer, and I was ready to try to step up and being governor is such a fantastic job and such an amazing opportunity, and really feel so blessed that the people of the state gave me that opportunity for eight years. When you ran, you ran against now Governor Carney. He was the lieutenant governor at the time. And I guess, I, I mean, I wasn't here. I was in college at the time. But was that like a controversial thing? Because I feel like a lot of people kind of see that lieutenant governor slot as like the heir apparent. I mean, what ha- how did that go? It was very competitive. I mean, yeah. it was really, really close. He's a great guy. It's the way that I think politics is supposed to be, which is uh, you don't get personal. You have a contest of ideas. You work as hard as you can. Both of us did. And I was just really fortunate, and I, and I won. But, I mean, our relationship before, uh, during, and after has been, has been strong. And I was, you know, one of the first, probably the first one to come out publicly to say I hope that he would run for, for governor. I think he did a fantastic job in, in Congress and before that as, as lieutenant governor. So it was, uh, I'd say it was controversial at the time. It, it certainly got a lot more attention than most primary elections, or mm-hmm. than any primary election, certainly in a long time. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a very exciting thing to be involved in. I was glad when it ended, and I was particularly glad to win. But I think it was... Uh, it was a lot. It was. It was. We both. We worked really, really hard. So you, you, you won the primary, which in Delaware, it's not a guarantee, but Democrats outnumber Republicans pretty significantly. You know, it's interesting. That was not always the case. When I first ran for state treasurer, so that was 1998. The before I was elected, the Democrats controlled two out of the nine statewide seats. Really? Now we control all nine. So in 20 years, it's been a pretty dramatic. Dramatic. Shift. So we went from two of two of nine to nine of nine. At the time, the Democrats had an eight-point edge in registration. Mm-hmm. Now we have about a 20-point edge. Yeah. I mean, dramatic. And, yeah. I th- and, and so until that time, Delaware was sort of one of those states that, you know, it was right in the middle. And, you know, now we're obviously very reliably Democratic. And, and I think in, in terms of that primary in 2008, we got so much attention that it would have been very difficult for a Republican to win because we had just, it, the, the, the primary was so hotly contested, not in a bad way, but just, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it got so much attention sure. that once I won the primary, I, I knew I'd win the general election. Sure. So you won, you won the general, and your reward was walking into a, a, a total crisis at the time, because this is the peak of the Great Recession. When you walked in on day one, I think you had like close to a billion dollar deficit that you had to take over. Well, on day one, I think it was about $600 million shortfall Mm -hmm. in the context of a budget that was just over $3 billion. And I'll never forget. So so we didn't know how we were going to solve it. We, We reached out to a lot of people and for the for the couple months between the election and the swearing in, I got together every Saturday morning at the boardroom down at the University of Delaware with people from throughout the state, different walks of life, sort of bringing them up to speed on the nature of the challenge, asking for advice. And then once elected, we needed to buy ourselves some time to figure out how we were going to solve the problem. So basically what I did is I I probably had 50 or 60 town hall meetings in those first two months where I went around the state and I explained, here's how we got into this mess. And I talked about the, the mortgage crisis and the like. And I also said, and let me just give you some context on how big a shortfall this is. And we would literally have had to shut half of the departments in state government, and that still would not have been enough to solve the problem. So what I said in all these town hall meetings was, I don't know exactly how we're going to solve the problem, but what I can tell you is that we have a few guiding principles. We're going to do our best to protect the most vulnerable amongst us, and we're going to try not to 
skimp on the investing in the things that will lead to future prosperity, like education and economic development. And we also had a guiding principle that there will be shared sacrifice. And everybody nodded their head at shared sacrifice until a couple months later when I announced our actual proposals and people realized it, it applied to them. But I'll <laughs> never, so, so we had about a, a 600, 625, $650 million shortfall on day one. I'll never forget in March, uh, my, I went, my, I got a phone call. My father had fallen and he was, he was on his deathbed in, uh, in Florida. And a few hours before he died, I took a walk with my mom and my sister and my brother around the hospital in Florida. I felt my phone buzz and it was a, a text from our secretary of finance saying, I just, I want to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news at such a time, but we just found out that the, uh, uh the shortfall is going to be $200 million bigger because revenues were going to be less than yeah. I mean, things were just absolutely falling like crazy, the jobs, revenue, and everything else. So anyway, I came back a few days later, announced my budget, painful, painful budget. People were incredibly unhappy. And I, this is to now, it was a, an $850 million shortfall in the context of a budget that was just a bit over $3 billion. And as you can imagine, the, the press, after I released this, was just awful. And I got a phone call from the, from the guy who had done all my TV commercials for my entire career. And he said, I don't know that you're going to be able to survive this politically. And I said, that is the last thing on my mind. I mean, you know, all, what has to happen is the state has to get through this. And we did. And we had a really amazing team of people uh, throughout uh, state government and, you know, the state employees who just, I mean, the, the thing that people don't realize is that when times are tough, state employees have it doubly hard because there's less available for them, and there's also more need by members of the public, so they're really having to do more with less, and they did an incredible job. And so we, uh, we worked through it with a lot of, lot, of, lot of pain, but eventually we came out of that, and we, you know, the economy, we ended up having the strongest economic recovery in the region by a pretty decent margin. So it, it, looking back now, it's just, it's hard to believe what we what we went through. That number, like to put that in context, at least recently, uh, last maybe last year, year before I looked it up, Delaware has the lowest budget of any state in the union. I mean, like $4 billion, I think was the last one that passed. And that ranked as the lowest budget of, of any state. California this year is proposing an $8 billion increase in their budget, which yeah. would be two entire Delaware state budgets. Yeah, well, they're like, a, they'd be one of the biggest countries right, right. in the world. Like yeah. the fifth largest yeah. GDP or something. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just to put that in perspective, so you, you only have this size of pool to work with anyway. And then you're almost a quarter or 20% of it short yeah. by completely external factors, yeah. right? It's not like you've got some programs that are running over. Oh, we'll just, we'll trim these programs out. You're, you're dealing with a bulk of your revenues done via property transfer tax. Well, you're in a housing crisis. And then revenue from income taxes and people are losing their jobs left and right. Like, and the franchise tax. And I mean, it was, it was just, it was really ugly. And so the first thing we did literally on day one was we announced the creation of what we called a government performance review, where we had 60 state employees uh, work with six loaned executives from Delaware companies to try to identify savings. And, you know, the thing is, is state employees are generally the ones who know the best about where the money is because they're the one doing the work, but they're often not asked. So we asked them, and I think that that effort probably yielded 60 or $70 million worth of savings, which is great. That's a fantastic savings, but in the con- that's, that's about 10% of what we needed. So we ended up, I passed the, I, you know, the biggest tax increase in Delaware history, not that I was proud of it, the biggest cuts 
in Delaware history. And then fortunately, we had this money from the, the federal government stimulus helped as well. So when you put it all together, we managed to uh, get through that year. But it, it was unbelievable. Was a sales tax ever considered? No, not, not really. really. No, I mean, I mean, people people brought it up, but we never would have had the votes. And I just, I, I really do think it's an advantage. And, you, you know, you look at some of the folks who locate here, some of the, you know, the retail and everything else, we would lose them. I mean, we have a distinct advantage. It does create a lot of jobs, and it never really got a, a serious look. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, like I said, grew up in Cecil County. We did all our shopping yeah. in Christiana. Right. And, you know, same thing, growing up in New or in Cecil County, but I spent all my time in Newark. Yeah. Because um, it's where we came. I was kind of curious, though, because you would think, I mean, that's the worst situation you could be handed. It's like if it's ever going to happen, you kind of wonder if we're in like, this is it. We've got to do it. We can't. The thing is, the, the, the challenge certainly had a lot to do with the, the revenue. But the, the even bigger challenge goes beyond the money. It goes to the people. And I'll never forget all the people I met who had lost their jobs. I mean, when people say what's the best part about being governor... I remember these kids came up to me at the Italian festival and said, are you the governor? I said, yes. And they said, we just want to thank you for getting her mom her job back. And that happened a lot. But they had to lose their jobs in the first place. Mm -hmm. And just so painful. This one guy told me, and this is a guy we celebrated that he had gotten a job in construction. And he said, governor, I had to do the hardest thing I've ever done before. I have twin 10-year-olds. And I had to go home and tell them and my wife that I had lost my job. And what's more difficult than that? And there was so much of that. I mean, our neighbors were just suffering. We shed thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs in such a short period of time. And uh, I, mean, I would imagine the large bulk of the manufacturing base, because you had... Oh, yeah. It, we had the refinery. We yeah. had both car plants. And, uh, and I, you know, I, having grown up here, I mean, I knew a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. And so this was not... I mean, that's the thing about Delaware. None of this is theoretical. Right. I mean, these are just like not people, it's not people that you're just reading about. I mean, it's people that you, that you know. Yeah. Or that you see at the grocery store. So this is a much better time now, I can tell you that. Oh, I'm sure. So, so after, after that, you walk into just this mess that, you know, it's not even anything you can, you can blame to. It's just, we got to fix it. You, you know, you did have great growth coming out of that. And then right when your second term comes, you get Hurricane Sandy. (laughs) Like, it's just walk out of one as soon as we're feeling good, get hit with another. I mean, we didn't certainly didn't get the same devastation that New Jersey and New York no, had. No, we didn't. But there was a lot of environmental damage from there, it. There was, but I mean, I, you know, it's a lot of it's based on what do you expect. Mm-hmm. And so I'll never forget, I, went, I went to bed and people were saying this thing, Delaware is going to be the epicenter. Mm. And woke up like an hour later because you don't really get to bed. And they say, you know, you, we really lucked out. It, it sort of twisted, it, it turned at the last minute. So compared to some places, we were really, really fortunate. But we did. We certainly, you do learn about the vulnerabilities, particularly around, you know, on some of the Bay Beach towns. And I, I so many times as governor, I would fly in the helicopter over to see the, to see the damage. And it really raises a lot of, I think, difficult questions that we're going to have in this country over the next decade or two about uh, places that uh, just, you know, Mother Nature, Mother Nature is going to win. Mother Nature is going to win. And so what, what do we do? And so part of what happened in Sandy, we, we ended up getting so much money that we were able to restore a lot of places that in the future, I don't know if we'll be able to restore them or not. Yeah, well, I, it feels like every time we get a really bad nor'easter, we have beach erosion oh, and yeah. loss that I never remember. I mean, obviously, global warming and climate change is playing a factor in this, but I never remember that when I was younger, that just bad winter storms yeah. could wipe out part of Rehoboth. It, it seems like 
at a certain point, something's going to have to give because this, you can't stop the storms yeah. from coming. Yeah. You know, when I, in my career, I worked in Ohio and Wyoming and Indiana and, and California, and I covered governors in all those states, uh, Mitch Daniels, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Matt Mead, Ted Strickland, and spent days out with them doing disaster surveying and who knows what. And the first time I ever met you was doing this sandy thing. And it was like you and I in the front of a boat for like an hour going up and down the the Delaware River looking at, at I guess, where some dikes had been repaired. Yes, yeah, with Colin. Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. And who is another great, I mean, great mind. He he was showing me that day sort of some of the vulnerable dikes and, and the like, and just, you know, we knew we would have to fix it. Because if some of those had bro- broken, I mean, I, there was one in particular around Newcastle that if that had flooded, it would have gone all the way and taken out a uh, Delmarva substation. Right, yeah. And, um, yeah. I didn't realize you worked with those governors. It's, I know I know all of them. Those are uh, good in, guys. In, at, at one point or another in my career, I had covered and spent time covering all of them. But, I, but to that end, the first time I met you, we, we're sitting in front of this boat, and you drove the conversation. Oh, hey, you're new. Where are you from? Uh-huh. Where did, oh, oh, you went to this school? Oh, do you know? Like, it was crazy. And I mean, all those guys, they were great. They yeah. were all really nice to cover. But I've never had a, an elected official that just drove a conversation like that. Really, at that point, I was like, this guy is different. I like I like this guy. Well, thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, compliment to you. Uh, but I think that speaks a lot to Delaware, yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, Joe Biden's that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people. Chris Coons is that way. A yeah. lot of people in this state. That was the first time, you know, that, that now I'm living here, Delaware's my state, and really was my introduction to how things are in Delaware. That, like you said, it's not hypothetical. No. It is, you know, everybody's a real person. There's a real connection to it. So you were on my good side from that point on. Well, that's good. <laughs> but from there, I mean, I feel like you, you spent, like, the, like I said, the first four, four years or so, it was all recovery and let's get back on track and getting past some of the stuff. Your second term, you really were able to... I think tackle maybe some of the stuff that you couldn't have tackled right off the bat because there were all these distractions. What do you, what do you feel like first term versus second term you were you were able to do? So yeah, I, I mean I tell people I feel like the first couple years were really about digging out, and then the last uh, five or six years were very much about laying a foundation, particularly around uh, workforce development. I'm really proud of the work that uh, that we've done, and I think we're seeing a lot of the, the benefits take place. You know, I probably visited 2,500 businesses while, during my eight years, and I would visit the businesses and ask one question. That question was, what can we do as a state government to facilitate your success? Because it was my view, if they were successful, they are likely to hire more people, and if they hire more people, that's the best way to solve a lot of the public policy challenges that we face. And they pretty much all, at least, I don't know, 90, 95% told me the same thing. They said the most important thing you can do is make sure that we can hire a skilled workforce. So I had, as governor, and I think most governors do, pretty much the same sets of conversations every day. One set of conversations is with a business that says we have job openings, but we can't find skilled people. And then the second set of conversations is with aspiring workers who just want a shot, but nobody's giving them a shot. And so a big part of the job is to be like the marriage broker between those groups. And the group that wants a shot, they could be returning veterans. They could be people who had been incarcerated. They could be people with disabilities. They could be young people whose education just did not do for them what they really needed to get some of these good jobs. And ironically, when you talk to a lot of the employers and you ask them about their recruitment strategy... A lot of them say, well, we hire away from each other. We hire from other employers. And what we did is we spent a lot of time with them, and we got them to agree that that's sort of a crazy recruitment strategy. And wouldn't it be a whole lot better 
if we worked with them to develop a new pipeline of employees, including those groups that I just mentioned. And so we spent a lot of time on that. And uh, we saw for the last several years uh, that I was in office, you know, one of, the, one of the statistics that's really important when it comes to labor markets is what's called the labor participation rate. And that's a reflection of our people getting into, looking for jobs or not looking for jobs. And we had one of the, for a while, the best, and for a while, the second best after Indiana, labor participation rates in the country. And so what that means is you can, and it sort of relates to unemployment in the following way. Everybody focuses on the unemployment rate. And you can have a great unemployment rate but not a very good economy because people can stop. If people stop looking for jobs, it can actually drive the unemployment rate down. Mm -hmm. So when we had a, 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 an unemployment rate that was dropping at the same time that we had a labor participation rate that was climbing, that was a really good uh, indication of how the economy was doing. I don't, I don't know if that's too technical, but we worked really, really hard around workforce development. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, going to your point about, you know, just hiring away from each other. Like, could you imagine if the NFL didn't have a draft? And you just only hired players from other teams. Like right. At a certain point, yeah. that's not going to work. Yeah. And, and I can totally see how that's not a good strategy for business. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the things, the programs that I really like was, um, was called Pathways to Prosperity. And this is a program that we started five or six years ago. And it's an opportunity for high school students, while they're, like, while they're still in high school, to take classes at a Delaware Tech or one of the other institutions of higher education in a particular field. So the first one we started with, we started with 27 students and in advanced manufacturing. And these 27 students graduated high school with a high school diploma and with college credits under their belt and a nationally recognized certificate that proved that they can do the job around advanced manufacturing. So that's what we started with. Today we have over 10,000 students participating. Wow. We've gone from 27 students to over 10,000 and now it's in 14 different fields. So advanced manufacturing, computer programming, bioscience, culinary, a bunch of others. And uh, Governor Carney is really leading to take this to the next level, which is very exciting. Outside of the economic and, and growth achievements, you had a lot of social advancement as well. You assigned uh, civil unions and marriage equality. Mm -hmm. Uh, what was it like for you when those those initiatives, because you would have seen probably the, the movement kind of really go between 08 and then I think, what was it, 14 when you signed marriage equality or 15? But, it, I mean, really, over that time, it really kind of kicked up. It did. It was a very fast-moving uh, uh, movement across the country. I'm glad that we in Delaware, you know, did a lot. I think one of the, one of the most in terms of uh, protecting people who are transgender. And, you know, look, I mean, for me, this was, you do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, Barry Goldwater, of all people, Repub a very conservative Republican, said there's no exemption in the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness clause for people who are gay. So, I mean, this is really core to American values, number one. Number two, you think about our employers, they all want to hire the best possible talent. And the best possible talent could be white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whoever, male, female. They can be straight, gay, lesbian, transgender. And what we want is we want to have a really welcoming economy so that everybody feels like they can be a part of what we're trying to build here. So I was uh, proud of that and also really proud of the work that we did around um, employment opportunities for people with disabilities. I think it's just an incredibly important arena. So many people are touched. Uh, they have family members who have some kind of disability. And these are folks who can add a lot to an employer or as entrepreneurs, but too often have not been given the chance. And I'm proud of the work that we did there too.
You know, is there anything that you feel like you wanted to get done that you just didn't get the opportunity to? Some of the work around uh, Wilmington schools, you know, I created the Wilmington Education Improvement Commission, and uh, Tony Allen and uh, Tizzy Lockman did a fantastic job. I think you're seeing uh, some of the continuing effort uh, there, and certainly something that Governor Carney cares a lot about, but that's something uh, not just for Wilmington, particularly for Wilmington, but it really extends across the state. Fixing the, uh, the funding system we use for our schools. We're one of only a handful of states that uh, sort of has, has this really inflexible um, funding model. So I would say, I mean, there, there are a bunch of them, but I'd say that is probably number one on the list. You know, even now, I know you're out of it, but do you, like, what in your mind would work? Or, you know, I'm sure it's more difficult to explain than yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I think it is, and I think, think the fair thing here is to give uh, Governor Carney an opportunity to lead the way. Sure. Um, you know, again, I'm proud of a lot of the progress that we made. There's certainly a lot more to do. I do think that the WEIC, the Wilmington Education Improvement Commission, people did a f- fantastic job, but we couldn't get the political support for mm-hmm. it in the, in the legislature. So there are other models, and I think it's, you know, the one thing is there's so many people who are really interested and committed to making a difference, and I think that's what's important. Yeah, it's not like it's, it's a, you know, it was, it was something that you guys wanted to focus on. It's not like it's not being focused on now. But no, for cer- sure. Certainly an initiative that is going to take a long time yep. to flesh out the, the right way forward. Yeah, that's always, it's just always been one that was just so different from my experience that I've never been able to wrap my head around how to, how to fix it or even how to go about it because yep. there's so many factors at play. There's a lot. And, you know, a lot of people with, their, you know, different opinions, and that's, mm-hmm. that, that can be a healthy thing. But let's make sure we keep the focus where the focus ought to be, which is students in these classrooms. And I think one of the really important things is to make sure, and I think there's a lot more attention these days to the fact that uh, what happens outside of the classroom for these students really very much impacts what's going on inside the classroom. Just last week, I participated on a panel with with Governor Daniels and a couple of others in Washington uh, for the Aspen Institute around social-emotional learning. And it is so clear that for students to succeed in school, they have to feel connected to the school. They have to feel connected to the community. They have to feel respected. David Brooks from the New York Times did a column the other day about students learn from people they love or something like that. And I just, I mean, I think there is so much, there's so much to that. My, uh, my sister's a, a teacher in Baltimore, and okay. it's funny that you mentioned that because she has said almost the exact same thing, that yeah. these kids, it's like they have, they, they, they don't have any of this connection at home, and then when they come to school, it's like the, for some of them, it's the only bit of affection yeah. that they feel that they build this community to. You know, we, we've been going for a little bit here. Is there anything you want to add before we, before we break it up? Well, I just, uh, I, I just feel unbelievably lucky to have had this opportunity uh, presented to me by the uh, people of the state of Delaware. It's a wonderful state. I'm not sure I would want to do this anywhere else. You know, we are only as strong as the trust that people have in their elected officials. And so I think one of the great things about Delaware continues to be how accessible their elected officials are. And I just encourage people to get out and talk to folks, let them know what they're thinking, let them know what they expect. And when we all work together, uh, we're just going to do a whole lot better. You know, I, I guess I'll give you this opportunity if you want to announce your 2020 campaign kickoff. <laughs> no, thanks. Okay. I, all I, right. I, I got nothing for you. I figured, I figured yeah. as much. Yeah. Is, would that, was that ever anything that you would even want to consider doing? For, for, to be president? Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I, I would never have seen a path to win. I think it would be an incredible job, but I never really saw a path. And most importantly, I think we've got a fantastic Delawarean who hopefully will run. And if 
he does, then he will have my full support. I would not be remotely upset if he ran. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I will say, in doing research before this, I saw somewhere that said that you had thought about a run in 2016, and that was the first time I'd seen that. Yeah. Did you? I No. Okay. I mean, I, I, I might have. I, no. I, mean, I, I never took a single step toward it. And again, cannot, I mean, you imagine, I mean, you get Hillary, Bernie, you had Martin O'Malley, who's a very talented guy, and you saw how far he got. I was, a, I was an O'Malley supporter. I was like yeah. the one of the seven. Yeah, yeah. They're just, I mean, just, yeah. you know, he didn't get anywhere. Yeah. And so there's, anyway, there, there are a lot of great people out there, but I, I do hope it'd be amazing to see Joe Biden's president. I would not be remotely upset. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Governor thank Markell. You. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks very much. Sam, so Jack Markell interview wrapped up. How do we do with our, I mean, what, what factual inaccuracies <laughs> did we put into the universe? Well, I mean, he was pretty accurate with uh, talking about his own life. <laughs> That's good. I would hope he knows what he did. But yeah, a few of the interesting kind of subjects that were touched on, you know, when he came into to office was one of the worst financial times in the entire country, and Delaware got hit hard as well. The deficit was $800 million in the state. And one of his first actions as governor was he cut his own salary by 20% because he was so concerned with the whole budget crisis. Yeah, that typically you want to lead by example. I can remember when I was in college at Ohio University, we had a massive deficit uh, in, our, in our athletics department. We, we cut four sports. It was terrible. And then the president gave himself a $300,000 bonus. <laughs> and it did not go over well. People were not happy. Like, you're cutting... Cutting sports and giving yourself more, and no. So yeah, you definitely want to lead by example, especially in government. And I think you're right. I mean, you know, I was in college in 2008, but I remember, you know, I remember being thankful I was in college in 2008 because yeah. it was like outside in the real world, it was pretty, pretty rough. And you know, certainly Delaware, you know, they lost uh, Chrysler and GM, which were you know major employers. I think the refinery shut down and then came back. And actually, my mom works closely with a few of these things over at the Star Campus where the Chrysler plant used to be. And that was one of Mark Hill's big things is he, he wanted to uh, not have that just sitting there and sucking up money from the state, and they wanted to turn it into something useful. So they're actually doing a lot of innovative stuff over there. But, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible that the things that he did and, and, you know, when the pressure was on, he really made a lot of decisions that are, we're now seeing benefits of even though he's out of office. Yeah, I mean, you really kind of have, if you, when you look at GM and you look at Chrysler, you kind of have a, a tale of two properties, right? You have the... The Chrysler plant became the Star Campus, which has become this really innovative, uh, growing, you know, especially for Delaware, kind of rebranding in some of this tech yeah. uh, field. They still have like a five to ten year plan. It's right. Like they just dip their toes in. And then you look at the Boxwood plant, the GM plant. There were numerous attempts to try and bring something in there, and it, and and you know, Fisker kind of fizzled out, and it, it wasn't wasn't able to produce anything. And you know, that facility is finally going to become something. I'm thinking logistics center now, but. You know, if the state hadn't taken action, would we be looking at the same thing mm -hmm. where the Star Campus is now? It's just this kind of vacant or dilapidated facility yeah. that doesn't do anything. And that, that's part of, I think, <clears throat> what 
a lot of Mark Hill's kind of vision and, and a lot of his like morals and things came down to is he really he just like cared a lot about the people of Delaware and he really wanted to make sure that we were moving forward and not backwards with a lot of our ideas and technology and he he was really pushing a lot of innovation. He talked about his Delaware Pathways program. So his commitment is that by 2025, 65% of Delaware's workforce will earn a two to four year degree, which would match the percentage of Delaware jobs requiring a degree. That's just one example of, of how he's investing in the people and trying to educate, which is one of the big things for the future, and, and make sure that everyone's well-equipped with the skills to, to get jobs. Yeah, and I think as part of that, you can go to Dell Tech for two years. I think you might you might have to meet certain requirements to do it, but you can go to yeah. two years tuition-free, which is huge. I mean, that was a big program under President Obama, trying to make community college um, you know, more affordable or, or, or cost cost free for for anybody who wanted to pursue a mm-hmm. higher education. You know, it's crazy. We like, you know, we look at like the first 13 years of education we do from from kindergarten through 12th grade and it's it's just, you know, taken for granted that mm-hmm. you know, you go to school and it's it's provided, but then if you want to go past that, now there's a huge financial impediment for most people. I mean, I would think, you know, the average four-year university has to be in five figures for yeah, for easily. most people. I mean, especially in Delaware, UD's not yeah. not cheap. At least for, like, I went to Winthrop University in, in South Carolina, and for out-of-state, I mean, that was still in the 20 grand yeah. plus area, which was, for, yeah. for a small school, 6,000 people. Yeah, I mean, Ohio University, I think uh, we were we were close to 20,000 people, but it was still out-of-state. It was over, I think it was like $26,000 yeah. a year. You know, we were fortunate that at the time Governor Strickland had, had frozen tuition, but, I mean, since I've graduated, I know it's gone up, so mm-hmm. I can't even imagine now. Continuing on the, the education thing, in uh, March of 2010, Delaware placed first out of 16 finalists in the federal government's grant competition for innovative education reform, which gave us or gave us the state the eligibility to receive as much as $119 million towards education, uh, and that would be repurposed to low-performing uh, low schools and improve the a system for evaluating students and making sure we're all on the right track. I don't think anybody's going to say uh, public schools are overfunded. <laughs> I don't know anywhere that that's a problem. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to get into about Mark Hill was this day, <laughs> this this bike trip that he took. Which, <laughs> like, okay, we, we talked about this pretty, I don't know, extensively, but we talked about it. Yeah. And and I mentioned, you know, like, I lived in some of the areas that he went through, and I cannot imagine yeah. riding a bike through there. 3,650 miles. From Oregon to Rehoboth Beach. Hard pass. <laughs> Hard pass. But he, I, I know he mentioned a little bit about it. It was about motivate the first state, trying to get Delaware aware of being active and trying to, especially kids, make sure everyone's getting out and doing stuff. And we finally saw that last uh, last summer with the opening of the Markell Trail in uh, Wilmington. Which, you know, county, county heavily involved in that county maintains that trail. Uh, if you have not been on... The Jack A. Markell, the Jam Trail, yeah. the Jam as we call it. Uh, it is a, it is a gorgeous ride from Wilmington to Old Newcastle. Another thing that uh, Markell got into during the podcast, it, it touched on it briefly, was he being the governor when same sex marriage passed uh, in the state, and and I just think it's very interesting that the the amount of pressure and things you have both politically, uh, socially, I mean, there's a number of different factors, and, and to to be the one to, to enact it and, and to say, yes, we, we are doing this. This is what is right. I think Markel deserves a lot of applause for that. I mean, I was in California when uh, the Prop 8 decision was overturned. 
you know, I, I remember going to the clerk's office there to document people getting married because Prop 8 had been overturned, and then the stay came, and then they couldn't. And, you know, just these people who, who all they wanted to do was, you know, put down on paper that this is the person they want to spend the rest of their life with, and they yeah. can't do it. It's crazy. And I covered the press conference where Markell announced, you know, hey, I'm signing this bill. It's, it's, uh, it's law. And it just so happened that Melissa Etheridge was playing the grand that night. So then that became like a big, like, unplanned celebratory yeah. <laughs> concert that night at, at the grand. I mean, it was really, it was a really cool event to be a part of. Delaware was the 11th state in the country at the time to legalize same-sex marriage. Of course, now with the Ober, Obergefell, uh, I can't, I can't, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> the Obergefell ruling, you know, it's legal across yeah. the United States. But at the time, Delaware was the 11th state, um, and and actually, right three days after California had finally legalized it. So yeah, you know, it was it's it's pretty big. Do you remember? I mean, you were. I mean, I was too young <laughs> at the time to really get into the nitty gritty, but. I mean, what what was kind of the political fallout from that? Yeah, I, you know, I I don't think there was much political fallout in Delaware. Like once pretty... once it happened, I mean, it was on the the heels of like state after state after state had just been doing it. Yeah. You know, like Massachusetts had done it years before. Um, couples would go to Massachusetts to get married, and then their marriage wouldn't be recognized in other states, and it was a big issue. And that was, and then and then you had this the the civil union versus marriage debate, and mm-hmm. you know, can and then you get into separate but equal. You can't just call it a different thing. That's not equality. You know, I don't remember there being real backlash at that point because I think by by 2013, yeah. I think everybody kind of knew this is where we're going. And, and yeah, we're all we all accept it and we're all yeah. supportive of it. I think uh, Markel was um, at least from all my research research and and you know, I was I was in my my teenage years when he was mainly in office and so I didn't didn't really see a lot of the the uh, effects, at least personally, but it seems like he was a incredible man, incredible uh, politician. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was here for his second term. I don't have any complaints. I think, I think we talked about, you know, some of the things that he wished he had had more time on. Certainly, you know, the Wilmington Education Commission had had a project in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, he mentioned that. Yeah, well, yeah, we, I mean, we talked about that, and and I think you'll never find anybody who's like super happy about how the education structure is mm-hmm. in any state. Yeah. I mean, it's there's always people who are going to say, well, we, we need to do this, we need to do that. You know, I, and I, I, I think, you know, he mentioned, he's like, oh, I wish we'd had more time on that. But, you know, like he said, Car- now it's now it's Carney's turn. And the current governor is going to have a plan. He's going to come through and, you know, introduce his vision for here's what I think we should do on education. And I think some of that's already playing out. You know, I think that's one of the really kind of interesting things about being an executive in government. You know, if you're, if you're a member of a legislative body, you're certain, you certainly have influence and you certainly have, you know, an ability to bring a vision and, and try to move it forward. But as the executive, you're kind of like steering the ship on it and kind of mm-hmm. setting those legislative priorities. Because at the end of the day, if you're not going to sign it, it's really not going to move very far. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that kind of getting to bring the, the ship so far and then handing it off to somebody that you trust, I mean, certainly if you switch parties, you probably feel terrible, but if it's somebody that, you, that you're confident in to see where they take it, I mean, for me, like that, I think that's, that's kind of cool to, to see, you know, all right, I, I, this is where I was at, this is where I've gone, and then, you know, what can this next person do with it? So, I mean, personally, you know, I'm, I, I look forward to see where, um, or seeing where the, the state goes on some of these issues, but I'm certainly glad to see where we've come from that really low point mm-hmm. in 2008, 
Yeah, and that, that, that's I guess that that's like the big thing that he should be recognized for is is being the the governor that pulled everything back and made the plan that that got us back on our feet. Yeah, I mean, you come in with an eight hundred million dollar <laughs> deficit pretty much right off the bat. Yep. I mean, that's almost I mean, it's like twenty percent of the whole budget now. I, the budgets weren't quite as large then. And you you know, Delaware has and to that point, you know, I think I mentioned it on the thing. Delaware has like the smallest budget of any state at four billion. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a ton of money, yeah. but that's the small. But when you and, start breaking it down, you, it starts when, thinning when you, out real right. fast. When you start breaking, and then now take take that four billion, or at that time about three and a half million, and take away about twenty five percent of it. Like, where are you going to come up with that revenue? Yeah. Yeah. That and and like you've walked into office, and you have less than six months to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, his back was against the wall, and he, he came through. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really. That's you know I think the least envious position you could probably be in yeah. as a as a governor or president or whatever. Here here's a here's a massive hole. Everybody's losing their jobs. We don't know what's happening. Everybody's going to be mad at you no matter what you <laughs> and, try to plan. <laughs> and no matter what you do, if you cut things, people are going to be super mad. If you raise taxes, people are going to be super mad. So good luck. But you know he hey he won a second term. Yeah. So it worked. And and you know here we are now. You know we've got the Star Campus. We've got we've got some amazing uh, technological advancements and, and startups in Delaware. I mean, Wilmington's really become a great startup yeah. scene. But, you know, the, like the mill space, like that's another spot that's like, mm-hmm. you know, here's this this great place if you have an idea and you just need some place to meet with collaborators yeah. that, you know, who knows if that comes about if we don't embrace technology and innovation the way that we did um, in the recovery. So, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll get you guys next time. And uh, that's podcast. <laughs>